Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Runners World podcast with me, Rick Pearson. And me, Ben Hobson. This week, we're speaking with author and trail runner Rachel Hewitt about her new book, In Her Nature, How Women Break Boundaries in the Great Outdoors. This one was an education for me, Rick. Oh, I'm glad. Certainly a few elements of it, which I don't know why I'm surprised, but talking to Rachel afterwards and sort of saying like, oh, it was amazing when you, you know, actually when you broke it down like that and how the sort of the the establishment of of different sporting leagues or whatever was was intrinsically tied with the suppression of women like out of the sport it was i mean it's obviously something that maybe has come up in the past but it was very interesting to hear rachel break it down in a in a bigger picture and i think that was so hopefully that similarly if anyone listening it's 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 very interesting what we our discussion that we had with her yeah Um, it's great as you'd imagine from a, a talented author like herself but um yeah no it was really good um how is your own running ben you've been you've been riding a wave people are saying uh yeah you know waves come crashing down Uh, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no everything's fine i've got uh, a small a sort of tent tight hip um which i'm you know i've actually been pretty diligent with sought sought help immediately from friend of the podcast gareth cole who's been on before to talk about all things uh, biomechanical, um, and he, he he had a quick look and said that just got a bit of uh, just tightness, which is okay. fine. So guess what? The old foam rollers out, and uh, I got the foam rollers out and a, and a and a a very hard, I'd say probably like a lacrosse ball, perhaps that sort of that sort of thing. I'm just doing some of that stuff, which I mean, anyone listening will be ultimately familiar with the perils of having to deal with all of that sort of stuff so you're sort of taking up taking up valuable floor space in the house as i sort of roll around and grow and make <laughs> writhing noises. around and writhing around while floor. everyone looks on thinking god this guy needs to get a life this is absolutely right outrageous so yeah it's and, about it. and it's it's all roads leading to the hackney half is that right i mean uh, hopefully that's the sort of that's that's the idea i mean Great. you know you know what's that's that's the next one on the list um Hackney, I did. I ran the first ever version of it, however many years ago. Oh, and, mate! Wow. And then since then, um, uh, it's, I haven't. I haven't been back. It's, it's the roads where I used to live, so I'm, I'm. I'm always happy to go and run around there. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. How's your running, mate? It's good. I'm refamiliarising myself with painful running. Um, oh, good. So, Not painful, bad running, but painful no, no, like, as in excursion like, running. Let's call it like challenging running. I think like when you're, as I have, I guess part of it's been like recovering from injuries and stuff. But really, I've kind of ducked away from. Um, challenging uh training and i've and i've enjoyed it and i've had other stresses in my life as it like as in you know becoming a dad for the second time but 
I'm jumping back in. I'm, I'm targeting, targeting a 10 miler, probably the Cabbage Patch 10 um, in October. And I want to try and really piece together like four or five months of of quality training. Um, I'm going to have to do it smart. I'm not going to have to put in huge miles and stuff like that, but I'm getting back on the uh, getting back on the horse. And actually, running quickly is actually really exhilarating, isn't it? That's a bit that, that gets lost in your, in your memory. You always think, oh, God, yeah. you have to do some six minute mile reps here or whatever and it's like but actually you feel brilliant afterwards so like that's a bit that gets lost it's quite exhilarating i think so it's been nice to remind myself i think there's sort of always that the memory always tends to exist around a sustained effort and that can be horrible when actually if you break it down into intervals yes they're exhilarating because you get that sort of surge of like effort but you know it's going to finish and it does and you can recover and you have to do it again and it's not nice you know obviously doing intervals sure, is hard yeah. work but it's not sort of continuous so you can kind of it ebbs and flows and you can you yeah get you can get through it get yeah, through, through it through exactly it. oh my god that sounds great mate so we're calling it now yeah sub 60 for that 10 miler Mate, that's if ever that would be if everything goes really, really well. That'd be like if everything's perfect, that would be the the goal. But in some ways, that's like it's a proper challenge in the sense that the chances of failure are relatively high with it. Yeah, Um, yeah. That's you know we've had enough people on this podcast tell us that we've got to have sort of what seem like mildly unachievable aims as the main thing to go for. So I think that's very achievable for you, though. To be honest, I think think that's um I have been inspired by some people we chat to who who are prepared to yeah push themselves to their limit and also to fail occasionally in the yeah. kind of um because that's how your progress is made and i think that i've probably had a few soft goals of running um, over the last few years where i'm like oh as long as i get under this i'll be happy mm. um when the chances of it not happening were relatively slim whereas this will be like hmm, i'll give you about 50 50 nice <laughs> which uh, well, is good uh, right 50 yeah. 50 now is great because but you know after some of this more training you're going to be way more like 70 30 i don't know mate we'll have to see but anyway it's exciting to be um to be you know focusing on something again i think that's that's important um anyway should should we stop waffling on and we'll get our we'll get our guest of the week on more important than anything yep guest of the week here in the studio guest of the week sometimes on the phone could be an athlete this week we're speaking with author and trail runner Rachel Hewitt about her new book In Her Nature which celebrates the often overlooked achievements of women in the great outdoors so Rachel welcome to the the Runners World podcast hello thanks for having me can we start then with why did you want to write In Her Nature yeah so I got into sort of long distance trail running really around 2017 And, you know, I just fell in love with it, absolutely loved it, everything about it, and wanted to read as much as possible, really, about sort of other people's experiences of running and especially running long distances. And, you know, I went to numerous bookshops and went to the sports section and, you know, the shelves were just full of books that had on their front cover a silhouette of a male runner, you know, and the stories that were in, you know, that were encased inside these books were also... I felt mainly of kind of men's experiences of running, whether that's sort of experiences of races or in kit or just sort of experiences of, you know, the joys and the benefits that running can bring. And I wanted to read something really that was, um, you know, sort of tapping into the things that I was finding in running, the sort of, you know, the way in which, you know, I loved the fact that I could, after, you know, I've got three children and at that point, you know, the kids were very young. And when I left the house, you know, I was 
normally weighed down by like a massive double buggy and changing bag full of nappies and whatever. And, you know, and I love the fact that in running, it was just me, you know, me in leggings and all I needed to take was a key, you know, and I sort of wanted to read a bit more about those sorts of experiences that, um, you know, kind of were quite specific really to kind of women running and, you know, and they're sort of joys, but also, you know, pitfalls as well. And, you know, I was sort of increasingly aware of being on the receiving end of a fair bit of street harassment, you know, from sort of catcalls up to men chasing me. And, you know, again, I wanted to kind of read more about, you know, how that sort of sense of the outdoors as a potential place of danger was something that shaped women's experiences of running. So I sat down and wrote that book. I mean, it's very interesting. I think as well, those a lot of those books, I imagine that you were you were coming across are very centered around racing as well. And they're kind of, it's all about that sort of a sense of achievement being goal driven from a must finish in X number of hours or a, a start. Whereas that's obviously not the journey that a lot of people get into running. Yeah, absolutely. And I was quite wary of that. You know, I think running can really suit a particular mindset that um, revolves a bit around quantification, you know, sort of, yeah, like, you know, and I was finding myself doing a lot of mental arithmetic when I was running, you know, sort of trying to work out what my pace was and what my finishing time was likely to be and, you know, my VO2 max and sort of whether this was an improvement and all of that. And I sort of realized that actually this tapped into quite unhealthy personality traits that I had experienced, you know, when I was a bit younger and when I was very obsessed with sort of calorie intake and my weight. And, you know, and I sort of realized that running was, yeah, tapping into some of those same sort of dynamics. So actually I wanted to kind of find a way to run that wasn't necessarily about improvement, actually, that was really about, you know, it sort of struck me that there are things that I do in my day to day life that bring me quite a lot of pleasure, like sort of, oh, I don't know, like putting a nice cleanser on my face at the end of the day or whatever. But I don't expect those things. I don't expect to get better at those things. You know, they're just a nice thing to have in your day. I don't measure that I'm like getting better at cleaning my face, you know, and it sort of struck me actually like, you know, maybe running could be like that, that it's a sort of daily joy or pleasure, but that that joy isn't always about getting faster or fitter. Can we talk a little bit about some of the characters in the book, particularly Lizzie LeBlonde, which is just like an amazing name. Uh, and Yeah, can you tell us about her sort of trailblazing life and, and her role in, in kind of uh, being a pioneer of women in the outdoors? Yeah, absolutely. She's so wildly glamorous. Um, I think, you know, part of what I wanted to do in this book is counter my sense that I felt a bit kind of not really at home in the kind of great outdoors, you know, felt a bit like um, sports like sort of running, but also, you know, long distance hiking, particularly ultra running, I think, you know, it had a bit of a sort of macho image. And, you know, I wanted to kind of counter my sense that I was a bit of an interloper in those sports by finding a history of women participating in sort of climbing or running or hiking up mountains. And at first, when I started looking for, you know, this history, this sense that women have always been outdoors, you know, I kept coming up against these claims that women had only started running in the 1970s, you know, that women had only started mountaineering in the 1970s. And at first, I, you know, I, I encountered this so much, you know, in sort of in blogs, but also in kind of academic histories, you know, which talked about how women's history of sport was really as spectators, not as participants. You know, and at first I sort of, you know, 
kind of accepted this and felt sad about it, but didn't really question it. And it was only after really a kind of couple of months that I started thinking, well, you know, hang on, these kind of activities like running and climbing and walking, they're really basic forms of human motion. And I started realizing how ludicrous it was, the idea that women had only really been doing this for kind of 50 years. So I started digging deeper. And, you know, that one of the first women whom I uncovered was this woman, Lizzie LeBlonde. And she made such an impression on me because, you know, she was a celebrity mountaineer, really kind of one of, you know, the most famous elite sports people of the 1880s and 1890s. But as well as breaking all sorts of records in mountaineering, in ice skating, um, in tennis, you know, she was also a kind of long distance cyclist, you know, as well as all these kind of sporting records that she was breaking she was also really intent on documenting her culture of women's sport in the 19th century through photography and so that was you know that her archive of photographs was just so eye-opening to me you know thousands and thousands of photographs of Victorian women you know strong and sweaty and athletic and competitive and it just totally you know kind of blasted apart the stereotype that I had entertained of Victorian women. And I realized, you know, I'd assumed that Victorian women were all sort of, you know, angels in the house, right? You know, they're all like pale and wan and sort of reclining on sofas and certainly not, you know, sprinting up the Alps, you know? So this really was such a jolt. And it, you know, made me realize that the vision of the history of women's sport that I had been reading about was just like totally wrong. Why, how, why do you think that there's, this sort of i don't know why is it so un, unreported why do you think there's such a sort of vast um sort of dearth in sort of like celebrated figures when there obviously were so many as you found out and are in the book why is it not sort of more commonplace is it just uh, the at the time actually those reporting on it it was i don't know the reporting was so sort of here and there that there wasn't actually sort of like a solid base and why is it sort of got to the stage now where it's only just people like yourself writing books who are unearthing these people? I mean, yeah, that's such a key question. And I think, you know, what's really startling is that, you know, at the time that Lizzie LeBlonde was famous, um, there was a lot of reporting of women's sport. You know, Lizzie herself wrote something like, you know, sort of 64 publications, you know, in sort of languages that were translated kind of across the world. You know, she was really, really famous. And, you know, newspapers quite regularly um, included reports on women's sport. Um, you know, Lizzie herself um, was an editor of a newspaper in St. Moritz, and that had pretty much 50-50 coverage of men and women's sports. But I think, you know, what I'm trying to identify is kind of like why yeah why has that been lost to public view and something I sort of found um, you know was major in this sort of shift in in history was that um, towards the end well towards the sort of latter half of the of the 19th century there is a move to sort of make sport more organized you know to kind of codify it and to pin down its kind of rules and regulations and that sport becomes more organized around particular facilities or particular competitions and part of this kind of shift is ideological you know it's to do with masculinity and it's to do with the sort of function that 
sport is considered to have in kind of training up and organizing young boys and men to be sort of adequate leaders of the empire, really. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this sort of organization of sport takes place in kind of public schools and in universities. And something that goes hand in hand with the organization of sport is that um, kind of record keeping about, you know, particular achievements in sport or kind of particular experiences start revolving around these new clubs and facilities and publications that are being churned out by kind of universities or public schools. And, you know, a lot of those institutions are male dominated. You know, so what they're recording is actually sort of men's participation in competitions, men's record breaking, and that this is disseminated among a largely male readership. Um, so it's not that women aren't participating in sport as this sort of transition is happening, but it's that their participation is no longer being granted the same sort of limelight as men's sport. And so when sort of people in the you know later half of the 20th century come to research the history of sport, obviously a lot of the material that is the most easily accessible is these sort of published lists of rules and regulations and participants and competitions and records that have been created by male-dominated clubs and male-dominated competitions and disseminated to a male readership. So, you know, there's it's, it's quite easy then to see how the sort of women's achievements are sort of falling out of visibility. What, what do you think the kind of the knock-on effect of that is Rachel when 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 a history isn't documented as uh, as well as it should be how does that make the modern female runner feel do you think life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's enormous knock on effects and some of them are sort of psychological and emotional and some of them are quite practical and logistic, you know. So I think on an emotional level, um, you know, this sort of sense that the outdoors is men's space, that, you know, women are kind of like interlopers into kind of men's space is really damaging. And, you know, when you look at sort of surveys for why, um, a lot of women are sort of reluctant or sort of, you know, a bit scared really of taking part in, you know, particularly sports like ultra running and trail running. You know, a lot of things that women report is, you know, as deterring them is, is lack of confidence, you know, and that confidence is both psychological and practical. So, you know, it's to do with um, kind of women historically having less training in skills like sort of navigation or kind of bushcraft, you know, um, but it's also just to do with this really deep seated sense that actually the outdoors is a place of danger for many women, that it's a place that we haven't historically belonged, and that we're sort of fairly recent kind of entrance into that world. But you know, that has sort of um, like knock on effects in terms of you know, the experiences that women have in um, like competitive events, you know, part of this sort of organization of sport in the late 19th century was, you know, the sort of writing of the rules and regulations around competitions to facilitate male athletes. And, you know, at the crudest level, a lot of women were just barred from competitions. But it also has sort of knock on effects, you know, I suppose in sort of my own sports, you know, like cutoffs are really important, right? You know, like that it's horrible to be doing as an ultra and feeling like you're constantly, you know, have cutoffs sort of nipping at your heels. But actually sort of, you know, cutoffs are largely designed around, you know, sort of male physiological abilities, you know, they're designed around sort of, you know, the sort of speed that it's considered sort of likely or reasonable for a male runner to complete a distance. And that women, you know, in running are generally about sort of 10 to 15% slower than men. So obviously, a race that kind of boasts having particularly tough cutoffs for men are going to have almost impossible cutoffs for women, actually. And, you know, you can look see this instantly by looking at you know the participation sheets for races and who signs up to them you know there's one particular ultra that boasts having kind of some of the most brutal cutoffs in britain and you know and they are pretty brutal for men they're almost um you know sort of unachievable for women and so four percent of their participants are women you know so i think you know that sort of effect of um that sort of misrepresentation of history as being sort of dominated by men in sport yeah it has those sort of practical effects on how women participate in sports day and you know race directors might not always just sort of be alert to those questions I think of the fact that sort of competition has historically been designed around men. Now we had um, uh, Lauren Fleshman on Olympian and she in her book that she wrote recently and it brings up a lot of these issues, but in relation to the the sort of found the sort of early stages of athletic development being very much centered around a male and physiological development of men and obviously puberty and all those sorts of things and how it's a completely different experience for women and how the two sort of like the pressures that that place on young women competing are sort of wholly unfair and unhealthy. 
And it's quite, and that's obviously just the legacy of what you're sort of talking about. Yeah, and there's, you know, huge shifts being made, you know, kind of in the present day around sort of um, training being far more alert to women's specific physiology. And, you know, sort of the fact that personal trainers and running coaches are now far more aware of the fact that, um, yeah, training schedules have to be designed differently at different points in the month around one's menstrual cycle. But, you know, there's still a lot to be done. And I think, you know, a particular area where there isn't really sort of sufficient research or advice is around menopause actually you know how sort of women need to train differently um during menopause and and after it you know so there's a lot of work to be done and you know when you look at the sort of recent history of the inclusion of you know sort of female subjects in sports science research you know it's still pretty tiny it's only gone it's gone from something like three percent of subjects in sports science research being female i think in about 2018 to maybe about five percent now but you know often you know the excuse that sports science researchers give is that you know women's hormonal variations make them too complicated to research yeah. but that's exactly yeah, yeah, why we need the research because because, yeah, you know, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. training is going to be really different for, you know, for a male body than a female body. In the book, Rachel, you write, um, experiencing free movement and a sense of physical power makes me hungry for other forms of liberation and authority. Um, I'm interested in how trail running can be a kind of arena for empowerment and, and self-improvement and what you what you found there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I sort of came to running, I wasn't really looking for sort of a big feminist project or anything, right? I just wanted to kind of spend a bit more time outside and get fit. And I was really um, kind of stunned, I think, at the way in which the kind of skills and self-knowledge that I developed through running had knock-on effects in the rest of my life. You know, so it's partly just to do with, you know, like when you're running long distances, you know, 50, 80 miles, you know, you're going through a huge amount of sort of physical changes in the course of one day and you know sort of experiences that you know I like physical experiences that I had never you know never had before and so you know I got to know my body in a way in sort of you know in its detail and its variations in a way that I'd kind of never had an opportunity to do that before you know just I mean simple things really like you know sort of what you fancy eating after 10 miles versus what you might fancy eating after 80 miles you know but it's also you know something that's called kind of like self-care and trail running I suppose you know how you look after yourself and yes that is to do with looking after yourself on the trail like in a run you know how you sort of manage your feet or how you deal with the fact that like you know your bra might be rubbing that sort of thing or just sort of making sure that you take on enough nutrition and sort of electrolytes even if you don't really want to you know but that's capacity for self-care I think is something that has ramifications outside of running and that you know clearly if you want to be sort of fit enough to run you know sort of 80 100 miles you have to look out look after yourself generally as well you know and I think it's something that women aren't always encouraged to do actually to kind of prioritize their own sort of you know physical and mental well-being you know we're sort of so socialized into caring for other people and obviously you know as a sort of you know I've got three children and you know I've got a lot of experience in sort of you know caring for young children but it wasn't really until I started running that I applied some of that knowledge to myself you know but I sort of think, you know, like running also 
gave me, um, you know, sort of practical skills that I didn't have before, you know, like my navigation's quite good now, um, you know, and it's sort of, and and I sort of got really good at it. You know, it sounds a bit silly, but I used to be quite sort of bad at asking questions of people, you know, like I was a bit sort of shy and felt like I was sort of intruding on their time and that this was really knowledge that I should just have generally. And, you know, and I think running just gave me the sort of confidence to be able to identify quite quickly what it was that I needed and wanted and how to ask for it, you know, and those are kind of really fundamental things actually to sort of how you live your life in the world, you know, and it's something that a lot of women I think aren't really sort of socialised into. Do you think women are still uh, being driven out of the outdoors uh, or do you think it's reaching some sort of levelling off of sort of uh, accessibility and encouragement to be there. I mean, you've got, you know, huge, important ultra running figureheads now, female figureheads who are winning races outright. So does that help in changing the whole landscape? Or do you think that there's still sort of, that's fine to celebrate those those women and their victories, but actually on a sort of more grassroots fundamental level, there's still a huge sort of, disparity between access between men and women yeah so i mean that was really one of the key things that i wanted to explore in this book is whether we are living through a moment of kind of progress in women's sport or a period of backlash you know and i ended up thinking well actually we're living through both you know so yes on the one hand we've got you know a huge rise of participation in women in running you know i think there's some in in america there's now more female recreational runners than men you know which is just staggering considering that you know when you look at the statistics from the 1970s you know something like 95% men and 5% women you know now it's sort of in you know some surveys suggest that you know it's 58% of runners in the US are um, a, a female. Um, and, you know, that goes hand in hand with, um, you know, the coming to the fore of these like truly remarkable female athletes, you know, who are getting more visibility, you know, who are these really important role models for women entering running today. And that also, you know, all of that goes hand in hand with a sort of greater provision of like kit and equipment that's designed for women's bodies, you know, training schedules that are, you know, that, that there are more of them that are designed for like women's physiology so in like lots of ways there you know it's a period of you know great optimism i think but you know when i looked at surveys of kind of what deterred women from running but also hiking climbing and just sort of like you know being outdoors in general you know, when I first started researching this book, I thought that the big issues for women in sport were going to be quite technical ones, you know, like ones about kits or about sort of um, race and competition regulations, you know, or about club membership, you know, these kind of quite sort of um, technical questions that have sort of actually quite quick fix solutions. So I suppose my hope was I might be able to sort of draw up some kind of like crib sheet, you know, for sort of race directors of like, this is what you need to do to make your event more female friendly. But actually, you know, what all the research suggests is that women are deterred from outdoor sport by fear and by specifically fear of male violence. And, you know, that this isn't just, you know, all in our minds. It's not just some sort of imaginary thing that we've conjured up, that actually 
a huge number of women, I mean, it's, you know, something like 99% of women, so it's basically all women, really, you know, have experienced some form of street harassment, you know, and that ranges from just sort of simple catcalls or obscene noises, you know, to being raped and murdered whilst they're outside, you know, and that the experiences of female runners are, you know, a microcosm of that, but they do show... I think that male violence towards women outdoors is um, is on the increase. And, you know, if you look at the rates of attacks on female runners in, you know, the last sort of six, seven years, there's an exponential rise, really, for, you know, sort of the decades compared to the decades before that. So it's something like, you know, more women running have been murdered by men in the last, since 2016, than in the 28 years before that. You know, there was a massive rise in street harassment during the pandemic. Um, and a lot of that harassment and abuse and assault is targeted at teenage girls specifically. And, you know, that's such a formative period for women. And it's already a period where girls are experiencing a massive drop off in participation in sport. You know, it's up until about the age of sort of eight, nine, ten, you know, there's kind of roughly equal levels of participation between sort of primary age girls and boys in sport. And, you know, during teenagehood, like girls just drop out of clubs and, you know, don't attain the World Health Organization recommendation for how many minutes of exercise they need to do per week. Whereas, you know, sort of boys level of participation in sport continues to rise. And, you know, this sets a pattern for adulthood. And, you know, and a large part of that drop off in sport, you know, it is to do with other things, but a large part of it is to do with the experience of male harassment and derision when girls are participating in sport and when they're outside. And, you know, I don't have any quick fix solutions for that. You know, that is not a problem that is as easy to um, to remedy as, you know, simply adjusting cutoffs yeah. in an ultra race. Yeah, there's some shocking statistics there. Um, what do you think that the modern female runner can learn from the heroes of the past? What did you learn by look, looking back and uncovering people like Lizzie LeBlonde? So I think there are positive messages, but I think there's also like a sort of warning signal, right? So the positive messages are that women belong in the great outdoors, you know, that this is provable, you know, that we have a history that is easily as long as men's history in the outdoors, you know, that we can look to women of over sort of 150 years ago and sort of, you know, much longer as well, who are sort of, you know, gaining, well, who have respect and visibility and are achieving, you know, really sort of extraordinary um, things in the great outdoors. Um, but a warning sign, I think, is that um, a lot of these women writing in the 19th century about their experiences are actually writing about the same things that women experience today in terms of the factors that kind of hinder their engagement with outdoor sports. So, you know, I found it absolutely stunning, really, that, and not in a good way, you know, that women in the 19th century are writing about how being harassed on the street stops them for going, from going for a walk. You know, there's the same kind of debates that are 
going on about abuse of women on public transport. These are go, you know, in the 1870s, people are debating about whether, you know, whose responsibility is it to deal with this? You know, should we design women only carriages for trains, you know, or like, and, you know, one journalist writes, well, you know, it's all well and good faffing around with women only carriages, but actually it's the whole structure of society that needs to change. And, you know, this is such a kind of contemporary debate that it's kind of stunning reading exactly that same debate in exactly the same language, you know, happening 150 years ago. So I think the sort of warning is that, you know, we, you know, people like Lizzie LeBlond thought that they were living through a period of huge progress in women's rights in sport. And they were, you know, they were. But at the same time, you know, progress is often met with backlash. And often those things happen at the same time, you know, so at the same time that sort of women like Lizzie were forging ahead in sport, there were also men pushing back. And part of the way that they were pushing back was, you know, violence and harassment on the streets. And part of it was through appropriating organized sport to kind of change, well, to shape the rules and regulations around keeping women out. And that often those backlashes work you know, and in the case of Lizzie LeBlond and her sort of generation of female sports people, it did work. You know, they have been written out of history. We've forgotten about them. So I think, you know, the warning really for sort of women today is don't assume that our rights are secure in sport, you know, that actually we need to defend our place in the outdoors constantly. You know, we need to be vigilant in the same way that we need to be vigilant of women's rights in legislation as well. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, and uh, when when is the book out? Is it out now? How can people get it? What's what's the best thing to do? Um, yeah, it came out um, about ten days ago, um, and you can get it from any good bookshop, really. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> online or you know bookstores in person. Um, yep, and you know, thank you for having me. And I just hope sort of you know readers enjoy the book and the podcast. So that brings us to the end of this week's Runners World podcast. A huge thanks to our guest, Rachel Hewitt, and to you, of course, for listening. You can subscribe to three issues of Runners World for just £5. Head to runnersworld.com slash UK slash podcast offer to get that exclusive listener offer. Please continue to listen to the Runners World podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. And if you haven't subscribed, then just do that. Tell everyone else who likes running or perhaps doesn't like running yet to listen to this podcast. And uh, that's probably all that you need to do right now so just tune in again next week small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.